You're listening to a sermon podcast from Sovereign Grace Church in Bradford, Ontario. For more info, visit sovgracechurch.ca. I invite you to open your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 13. This is our last sermon in our mini-series on parenting. It's fitting that on this Baby Dedication Sunday that we can focus on this theme of parenting. One of the oldest debates in the parenting world is the relative influence between nature and nurture. To what degree are our children shaped by internal influences, their genetics, nature, and personality? And to what degree are they shaped by external influences, their experiences, their upbringing, and their influences? The world's answer to this question has shifted from generation to generation depending on the prevailing worldview. In the time of the Enlightenment, the main idea then was that children are born tabula rasa, which is the Latin phrase for a blank slate. They are a clean slate that we as society, we as parents have the liberty of writing upon. They are morally neutral beings who are completely shaped by their experiences and influences. All nurture, no nature. Due to the progress of the scientific revolution, we see a different idea as the pendulum swings from one extreme to another. And here we have the idea that human beings are merely a series of one chemical reaction after another. And those chemical reactions come from the individual's genetics. Who we are, what we are like is predetermined by our biology. And there's nothing that we can really do to change that. What is the Christian answer? Is it nature or is it nurture? Many of us would say that it is almost all nature because we believe in the doctrine of sin. We have a fallen, sinful nature, an inclination, a natural inclination with which we are born that is inclined away from God and away from godliness and towards self and selfishness. And unless that sin is addressed with a spiritual remedy that we find in the gospel, then no change is possible. For those of us in the Reformed tradition, we also believe in the doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of sin and the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty teaches us that nothing happens except through him and by his will. If change is ever going to happen in our lives and in the lives of our children, it has to be sovereignly ordained by God. He has to call them to conversion. He has to give them the gift of faith. He has to work in them by the power of the Spirit so that they live a different life. And until he does, our efforts as parents are powerless. Now that is all true. But the application of those doctrines is not always as clear as we would like. If we take those doctrines... Doctrine of sin, the total depravity of man, and the doctrine of God's sovereignty, that God is in control of all things and no lasting change happens except through him and by his will. And we use those doctrines as an excuse to practice passive parenting. We have completely missed the mark. If we say, oh, you know what? 
at the end of the day, our kids are going to be whatever God decides that they're going to be, so I'm just going to sit back and watch what he does, then we have forgotten that God uses human means to accomplish his divine purposes. He uses us, our efforts, our teaching, our instruction to accomplish his sovereign will. He uses, you could say, he uses nurture to change nature. That is why we take our children to church. A human means to accomplish divine purposes. That's why we read the Bible to them and teach them to read the Bible for themselves. Human means to accomplish divine purposes. And that is why we heed this parenting lesson in Proverbs chapter 13, verse 20. Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Who our children walk with will contribute who our children become. Walk with the wise, become wise. Walk with the fool and become a fool. Now, the book of Proverbs isn't all about human effort. The book of Proverbs often in various places upholds the sovereignty of God. For example, Proverbs 2 verse 6, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. It's without question that wisdom comes from the Lord. But one of the ways that he delivers that wisdom to us and to our children is through walking with the wise. There is no joy in raising children who say the right things but do all the wrong things. Children who are professing Christians but who deny Christ by their works. We, we don't just want children who say the right things, who come to church on Sundays but are fools. We want wise children. Proverbs points out the reality of, of this when it says in chapter 17, he who sires a fool gets himself sorrow and the father of a fool has no joy. The flip side of that in chapter 23 is the father of the righteous will greatly rejoice he who fathers a wise son will be glad in him. And so parents, if you've wondered what your goal is as a parent, I mean, if you're a Christian here, you know that your goal is to, to lead your children to Jesus, that they would walk with Jesus, that they would go to church, that they would live a life worthy of the gospel. That's all true. But, but Proverbs introduces another category for us, that our goal as parents is to raise up wise children. And we raise up wise children by helping them walk with the wise. That is easier said than done because the wise are rare and the fools are many. We find fools everywhere. Fools are in Christian schools. Fools are in homeschool co-ops. Fools are in the shows and podcasts that our kids listen to. Fools are in our own hearts. We don't need more fools to make our foolishness worse. We are already foolish enough. Now, that doesn't mean that we teach our kids or we force our kids to cut off the fools from their lives. It, it can mean that. It can lead to that. But in most cases, it simply means that we, we teach them to not let the fools in their lives influence them and to shape their values. We don't want them to become their companions, their friends. We remember what it was like 
to go through a season. Parents, if you're here, you turn your back your mind back to your younger years when the main influence in your lives was not your parents, it was not your church, it was not your school, it was your friends. You wanted to dress like them, you wanted to act like them. How how you treated people was shaped by how you saw them treating other people. We wanted to be just like our friends. And Proverbs 13 verse 20 says that you should not have a relationship like that with fools, that you don't become their companions. Fools may be in your life, but they shouldn't be influencing your life. You should let your life influence them. We must help our kids to choose wise companions because if they don't, they will suffer harm. And so the title of this sermon is Wise and Foolish Companions. And we're going to look through chapter 13, verse 20 as, as the lens through which we look at three different passages in the book of Proverbs that introduce to us three different categories of people that Proverbs says, avoid them. Do not walk with them. Do not let your children be companions with them. And these three categories will form our outline today. First, the greedy. Second, the sensual. And third, the angry. The first category of the greedy person we see in Proverbs chapter 1, verses 10 to 14. My son, if, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Let, like shale, let us swallow them alive and whole like those who go down to the pit. We shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. How many of you know that before I became a pastor five years ago, I was a criminal defense lawyer in Toronto. And one of the bigger cases that I worked on was a wiretap investigation. Yes, they truly do exist. The police have the power to tap your phones if they have a judicial search warrant. And in this particular case, they called it Project Marvel because Marvel was all the rage back then and they were investigating a criminal organization that called themselves YBK, young, uh, the Young Buck Killers. And as I read these verses, I am reminded of YBK. They lay in wait for blood. They kidnapped members of rival gangs. They ambushed family members in drive-by shootings. They sold drugs and stole property to fill their houses with precious goods and plunder. You know, the most tragic thing about this case and this criminal organization is that almost all of them were teenagers. They were just kids. They weren't that much older than the kids who are sitting beside you right now. Even the older members of the gang were in their early 20s, but they had been immersed in gang culture at an early age. There weren't really that many people who were older than that because they had been murdered or they were in prison. Now, many things obviously drew them into that kind of life. I mean, some of them had absent parents. Others had parents who were in the gang culture and introduced them to that. But two things drew my attention. Two factors drew these young people into gang life. Greed and community. Greed and community. We find both of those things in these verses. The promise of easy money, 
Quick, easy money is found in verse 13 when they say, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. I mean, when I would have private meetings with my client, a member of YBK, I mean, if I tried to convince him to go and flip burgers at McDonald's for minimum wage, he would have scoffed at me. I mean, why would he work a steady job at minimum wage where he would struggle to pay the bills when he can sell drugs and wear diamonds? These are greedy people who define themselves by how much they have. The promise of community is found in verse 14 where these sinners are enticing Solomon's son to throw in your lot among us. We will all have one purse. One purse. This is a microcosm of communism where everything that the members of this group own is communally shared. Everyone is equal. That is the thing about gang culture. When you strip away the guns, the violence, and the drugs, what you find is a community of people who actually watch out for one another. They have one purse, which means that if you steal from one, you steal from them all. If you mess with one, you mess with them all. They are really like a twisted version of a family. Yet they may exploit and extort people, but at the end of the day, they watch each other's backs. Solomon tells his son in verse 15, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Solomon says, avoid them. Do not let them become your companions. Do not let their sweet words of fast money and loving community lead you onto their paths. He is not to walk with them. He's not even to place his foot on their paths because that path, as much as it may be lined by diamonds and jewels and gold, it is a path that leads to self-destruction. And he describes that in verses 16 to 19. For their feet run to evil and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Solomon is doing what wisdom does, which is he, it lifts the curtain from the glamour and the fun and the freedom of sin and shows you what is really behind it all. It is nothing but death. These gang members may be lying in wait for the blood of others, but they are really lying in wait for their own blood. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 26 that all who take the sword will perish by the sword. If you live violently, you will die violently because eventually the people that you hurt, the people that you took advantage of will give you what you gave them and you will reap what you sowed. Now, given where we live and the socioeconomic demographic that we come from, it is perhaps rare to say that our children will rub shoulders with gang members and people in criminal organizations. It can happen. And then these verses become really practical. But the more common temptation that will face our children is that they will be surrounded by the greedy. And greed is one of the the seeds that lead to this kind of immoral 
lifestyle. You can meet greedy people who are willing to break the rules. You can meet greedy people who are ruthless towards their competitors. And Proverbs tells us that the same end awaits them. Verse 19 says, such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Parents, we need to teach our kids that to walk with the greedy is to become the companion of a fool. And to follow on the path of the greedy is to walk on the path of self-destruction. It will poison their souls. It may not start that way. It may start innocently enough. But over time, they will start compromising their morals. They will sin against their conscience. And they will end up doing things you never thought they could do. Instead, we must teach them to heed the wisdom of verse 11 of chapter 13. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. That's the first category that we need to warn our children about. I mean, if if our children would cut off greedy people from their lives, then perhaps they wouldn't have very many people in their lives. we, We need to teach them to discern what are their values, what are the values of their friends, and to realize that they cannot let that influence them. Second category, the sensual. The sensual. One of the major themes in the book of Proverbs is the dangers of what Solomon calls the forbidden woman. The forbidden woman. Solomon writes mostly about the adulteress, the married woman who strays from her home and seeks alternative male company. But the concept of the forbidden woman applies to really anyone who's not your wife. It could be your girlfriend who doesn't believe in abstinence. It could be the explicit images that are on your screen late at night. Whatever it may be, the dangers of the forbidden woman are so serious that Solomon devotes all of chapter five, most of chapter six, and all of chapter seven to convincing his son to stay clear of her and to delight in his wife alone. Proverbs chapter five, verses one to six. He writes, my son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. Now Solomon only speaks about the forbidden woman and not the forbidden man because he's writing to his son. But if he were to write to his daughter, he could write equally about the forbidden man because both men and women can seduce our young people to sin. And Solomon points out that it begins with honeyed tongues and smooth words. It could be a little compliment here, a little suggestive comment there. It sounds sweet and it tastes oh so good, but once again, Solomon shows his son what it really ends up becoming, the true realities behind these sinful pleasures. In the end, he says, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. His son may have thought that he has found some hidden treasure 
But Solomon opens the lid and shows him that there is nothing but skulls and bones within. And so he says in verses seven to eight, and now, O sons, listen to me. Do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Parents, this is the second fool that we need to teach our kids to not become companions with. They must avoid the sensual, the forbidden man and the forbidden woman who would seduce them into sin because they do not honor marriage. Solomon says, keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. And that isn't easy because seduction is intoxicating. Young people can easily get addicted to the feeling of being pursued and wanted singled out. But Solomon tells us that that doesn't lead to the path of life. It leads to the path of death. It could be physical doors that his sons need to avoid or it could be the virtual doors. The doors that are entered by typing in a few select words onto your computer. Far too many Christian men regularly walk through the virtual doors of the forbidden woman on the internet and they feast, they gorge themselves on her poison fare. To those men, Solomon's counsel is the same. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. We know how to avoid physical doors. We don't drive to a certain neighborhood. We don't walk down certain streets. We avoid putting ourselves in a position where we would hear the honeyed words of the, of the sensual. But with virtual doors, we need to get a little more creative to avoid those doors. We may need filtering software that censors out anything that is inappropriate. We may need to install programs that block certain websites or use accountability software so that someone always knows what we're looking at. There are so many options out there that there really is no excuse for us to keep ourselves from the door, the virtual doors of the forbidden woman. Now, some people say, oh, it's, well, it's too expensive. I, I, I want to pay another monthly subscription. I want to steward my money well. Well, let me ask you this. Is there any price that you wouldn't be willing to pay to save your life? I mean, what, what, is, what is your wealth if you give up your life? What is a profit of man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? I mean, we're not just talking about your purity here. We're talking about your very life. I mean, Solomon describes some of the, the consequences, the implications of pursuing the forbidden woman in verses 9 to 14. Lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my, how my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation." Solomon is doing his son a favor here as he foreshadows what his life will look like. He's telling his son, you may not regret this now, but you will regret it when you're older. 
And by then, the one life that God has given you to live for his glory will have been wasted. And so when you are young, do not lose this opportunity to fight with all your might for your purity and for your life. Pay whatever price it takes to keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. Parents, we need to teach our kids to keep away from the sensual. And that means teaching them not to date someone just because that person pays attention to them. I mean, I had my first girlfriend when I was 13 years old. I don't even know if my parents know that. Did you know that? They sent me that summer between grade seven and eight to a YMCA leadership camp. And there, there was a girl who paid attention to me. I mean, I didn't really like her, but she seemed to really like me, and so I said, yeah, let's be boyfriend and girlfriend. I mean, it ended innocently enough. I mean, we held hands, that's about it. Um, but I mean, these camps only last so long. And I tried to maintain a distance relationship by calling her and all that, and she ended up making all these excuses, and that was over quick. But I mean, that, that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, we, we reciprocate affection because someone shows attention to us. It's intoxicating. We need to teach our kids not to respond just because someone is responding to them. Parents, we need to teach our kids to wisely navigate their way through the internet and to be accountable to you. We need to teach our kids that so-called missionary dating isn't a good idea. When a Christian dates a non-Christian with the hope of converting them, I mean, that, that can work out in, in rare cases, but let me emphasize the rare, because more often than not, the unbeliever has more of an effect on the believer than vice versa. I mean, that is what happened to the author of Proverbs himself. I mean, Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived, the, the son of the greatest king who ever lived, given divine wisdom, authoring divine scripture, and he strays from the Lord. Why? Because he loved many foreign women. And those women worshiped idols. And in time, so did he. If we are to teach our kids to walk with the wise and not be companions with fools, they must keep away from the sensual. Third category, the angry. This is perhaps the most surprising of this list of three but it may also be the most timely because anger is on the rise in our culture. In fact, in some circles, anger is actually seen as a sign of virtue. That the angrier you are at the idiocy of the people that you and your followers disagree with, the more credible you become, the more worthy of attention you become. But scripture points us in a different direction Proverbs chapter 22, verses 24 and 25 say, make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. 
Now, let me be clear. There is certainly a place for righteous anger. God is righteously angry with our sin. Jesus was righteously angry when he turned over the tables and he scattered the vendors in the temple. Jesus was righteously angry when he called the Pharisees a brood of vipers and whitewashed walls. But Jesus also ate at the tables of the Pharisees. He spent time in the homes of the very people who plotted his murder out of a heart of compassion. Jesus shows us that there is a place for righteous anger, but what that looks like we can barely relate to because we are not like Jesus. Our anger is rarely righteous. And even when it is, it is tainted by self-righteousness and pride. When Jesus was angry with people, his compassion and his mercy towards them that he wanted to give to them never ceased. When we're angry, all we feel is rage. Proverbs tells us that the more time we spend with angry people, the more we become angry people ourselves. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with a wrathful man, that is, don't be his companion, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. I mean, you can, you can call anger a, a, a gateway sin. Just like you have drugs that are gateway drugs that open up to harder narcotics, anger is a gateway sin that opens up the floodgates of temptation. That's why we, we saw in Ephesians chapter 6 the one thing that the Apostle Paul warns fathers about is fathers do not provoke your children to anger. And that is why he says just two chapters earlier, let not the sun go down on your anger lest you give an opportunity to the devil. And that is why Proverbs 29 verse 22 says, a man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. Parents, we could call this the Trojan horse of foolishness. I mean, we know that we should look out for our children when it comes to becoming companions of liars, gang members, drug dealers, thieves. We know that, but we don't know that we should look out for companions who are angry Men and women of wrath who stir up strife and cause much transgression. And once again, this could apply to real life companions or it could apply to virtual companions. I mean, so many of the cultural commentary podcasts out there are insightful and they're helpful, but they are angry. And the people who are speaking into our culture, who, who our young people are listening to, they are condescending. They are demeaning. They, they create straw man arguments to tear down their opponents. What they say may be true, but how they say it is not godly. If you listen to them enough and make them your regular companions, you are bound to sound just like them. And so parents, part of our responsibility is helping our kids to avoid becoming companions with the greedy, the sensual, and the angry. And that doesn't mean that we tell them that they can't be friends with Jimmy down the street because he yells at his sister. 
but it does mean that we teach our kids to, to discern what are the values of these friends that I have? And if they are sinful, fallen, broken values to put up appropriate boundaries so that they do not become companions. And then we need to realize that, that protecting them from those kinds of relationships is only half of our responsibility. The verse doesn't say, whoever isolates himself from the world becomes wise. It doesn't say, whoever does the best job of hiding from negative influences becomes wise. It says, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And so we we need to notice that this verse is not about isolation. It's about influence. Merely removing negative influence isn't enough. We need to add the positive influence as well. Take away the companionship with fools and add the companionship with the wise. How do we do that? Well, let me briefly suggest three ways. First, help them find friends who are functionally shaped by God's word. Help them find friends who are functionally shaped by God's word. And I add that word functionally because there are a lot of kids who know the Bible but who have no idea how to live it. There are a lot of kids out there who know that they should be reading, trusting, and obeying the Bible, but they don't actually do it. I don't just want my children to be friends with kids who know Bible stories and go to church on Sundays. That's not what I want from my kids. I want my kids to be friends with those who know that they are personally responsible before God that they are sinners in need of the grace of God. Kids who confess and repent of their sins, who ask for forgiveness, who have a living, vibrant walk with God. And that, my friends, is hard to find. If our kids only became friends with kids like that, they might end up being loners. But if you do happen to come across a kid like that, then gently push your kids in that kid's direction. Help them find friends who are functionally shaped by God's word. Second, help your kids find spiritual mentors. In some ways, Proverbs 13 verse 20 is reminding us that that having peers is not enough because usually, especially when you're younger, your peers will not be wise. You will be equally foolish together. And and to walk with the wise is actually to walk with those who are more experienced, who are older than they are. That changes as they get older. But when they are young, to walk with the wise means walking with spiritual mentors. And so if, if you, parents, if you meet someone at church who is especially encouraging to you, so, someone who is, always seems to be spiritually sharpening you, who when, when you leave a conversation with them, they, they leave you wanting to seek the Lord, to love Jesus, to obey his commands, then think and pray about asking them to spend some time with your kids. You, you, I mean, you, we all know the old saying that it takes a village to raise a child, but that, that village doesn't just erect itself automatically. You need to build that village. 
It, you need to introduce your kids to the, the uncles and aunties in the village so they would walk with the wise. Let's help our kids find spiritual mentors. Lastly, help your kids walk with Jesus. Because Jesus is not only wise, he is wisdom itself. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in him. I mean, Jesus is like us in every way except he was without sin. All of us are sinners, all of us are fools in our own ways, but Jesus, Jesus is perfectly righteous and perfectly wise. I mean, none of the categories of people that Proverbs describes and tells us to avoid is true of Jesus. Jesus wasn't violent. He let violence be done to him as he lovingly laid down his life for sinners. Jesus wasn't greedy. He had no place to lay his head, and yet he was content. Jesus wasn't sensual, even though the prostitutes of the city undid their hair and wrapped their hair around his feet. Jesus wasn't given to anger, but he was gentle and lowly in heart. A friend of sinners, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Parents, let us help our children walk with Jesus. Let us bring them to the cross again and again and again, where Jesus bled and died for their sins and ours. Let's help our children believe in him, to trust in him, to obey him, to, to learn to sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to his voice. And if anyone here today has lived foolishly, you think about these categories of people, the greedy, the sensual, and the angry, and you say, that's me. You've cut corners or you've mistreated people out of greed, or you've lived a, a sensual life and given in to the forbidden man or the forbidden woman, or, or your life has just been a series of one angry rant after another, then, then please hear me. Those vices do not have to define you. you. You are precisely the kind of person Jesus came to seek and to save. I mean, Jesus saved greedy Zacchaeus the tax collector who exploited his own people for his own gain. Jesus came and he, he came to the, the prostitutes and the sinners of the city and he showed them grace. Jesus came for angry Paul who was so filled with hatred for Christians that he went out of his way to throw them into prison and yet he came to save them. You may have lived as a fool but you don't have to die as a fool. You can come to Jesus the one who is both wise and merciful. And he will cover you with his righteousness and he will make you wise as you walk with him. Let's pray. Father, as we close this series on parenting, we are freshly reminded of this sacred responsibility that you have given to many of us how difficult it is because how foolish we are. But you are the perfect father and you will teach us if we seek your face. And in many ways you will compensate for our failures, our deficiencies. We're reminded 
of how weak and limited we are when you do the best work in the lives of those around us without us. But we ask, Father, that you would help us to do our part to teach our children, to show them not only a better moral way, but to show them the gospel way that they would live for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.